We are engaged in holy rhythms that shape us and form us when we do church. And we come engaged with Jesus on his journey in the Gospel of Luke. Since chapter 9, this is a fairly long prologue, so stay with me. Jesus has been on a journey. This is a travel story as he goes towards Jerusalem. Do you remember what happens when Jesus gets to Jerusalem? We have a holiday for it called Easter. Good Friday, really. It's like watching Titanic, where you're sort of wrapped up in the lover's quarrel, the Romeo and Juliet, and the families fighting, and Leo DiCaprio, and Kate, and the father has a tuxedo, all the while you're forgetting that the boat is rushing towards an iceberg that will spell their doom, this dramatic irony that we all participate in. It's the same for the hearers in the first century of these stories in the gospel for Luke. Jesus has been getting popular. The crowds are following him. They love his miracles. They love all the great stuff he's saying. They're like, yeah, stick it to the man, Jesus. Imagine there's a lot of young people in that crowd who have the time and probably the caretaking load to be able to follow this guy in his journey across the not-so-easy-to-manage landscape that is first-century Palestine. They think he's going to bring about the end of the Roman occupation. All good things. Now, in Titanic, it was only the audience who knew about the iceberg, right? But in our story, we know what Jesus is coming to, to Jerusalem, and so did Jesus. It doesn't take God to figure out that if you're gaining followers in a mass movement and you're anywhere under the Roman Empire's occupation, you are a threat to power. And if you are a threat to power, power will do whatever it takes to get you out of the way. Because the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, is the number one goal here. So Jesus is journeying. He's got this huge crowd of people like, yeah, Jesus, stick it to the man. And then our story begins. The gospel writer says, now large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned to them and said, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, and this is a good time to look at the front of your bulletin, Which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he's able 10,000, to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot, then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So, therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus would be the worst pastor I can imagine. Certainly of any church he wants to grow, 
and definitely of any church that doesn't like talking about money. Now, 11 out of 39 of his parables are about finances. In the Gospels, it's about one out of 10 verses or 288 verses of the four Gospels all about money. That's why it feels like we talk about money a lot because we keep talking about Jesus who kept talking about money. But those of us who have any training in economics know that it's not about the money, right? It's only a symbol. It's not even about the pieces of paper or the ones and zeros that fill up the servers and the bank accounts or the things purchased with it even. It's all about decision-making and culture and psychology and for us, a just and inclusive kingdom. But here, Jesus focuses on that cognitive calculation of power and decisions that drives every corporate boardroom across the globe, the cost-benefit analysis. Mm, isn't that what you came for church to, for today? Get some cost-benefit analysis. I mean, it's a simple idea at the onset. You look at a decision in terms of how much will it benefit you? And revenue, profits, the way your life is better, lifestyle, general happiness, or in economic terms, utility. And you weigh that against that benefit versus the cost to you and money and your organization's focus or mission drift or definitely in that most valuable of 21st century assets, time. Cost, benefit. And we do this all the time, intuitively. Every time we're in the marketplace, every time we make any decision about how to use our time, how to use our money, or how to think about what we think about, we're doing this. But we're not very good at it. There are so many heuristics and biases out there, but my favorite is written about in the book How We Decide by Jonah Lear. He talks about a study done by Baba Shiv of Stanford. And Lear writes that in this study, there are two groups of students. One group was given a two-digit number to remember, while the second group was given a seven-digit number. Let's say 12 versus 1,672,533. So one group's given the two-digit, the other one's given the seven-digit, and then they're told to walk down a hall where they're presented with two different snack options, a delectable slice of chocolate cake or a bowl of fruit salad. Let's assume for the sake of the study that it was a good-looking fruit bowl. <laughs> Lear writes, here's where the results get weird. The students with seven digits to remember were nearly twice as likely to choose the cake as students who were only given two digits to remember. The reason, according to Professor Shiv, is that those extra numbers took up valuable space in the brain. They were a cognitive load, making it that much harder to resist a decadent dessert. In other words, willpower for humans is so weak, the prefrontal cortex that helps us make these decisions is so overtaxed that all it takes is five extra bits of information before the brain starts to give in to temptation. End quote. If you want to see how taxing this is for yourself, try it. 
try walking around one day trying to remember the number 12, 12, 12, 12. And the next day, walk around thinking 1,672,533, 1,672,533, and see what kind of culinary choices you make. And these were college students, by the way, like most studies. These are folks who are hypothetically near the peak of their cognitive abilities. So how do we make good choices? At this ecclesial new year, this reset in our rhythm in the United States of America, that is September, Jesus tries to get our attention amidst all the other noise with a verbal defibrillator. Give up. No, you not, don't just give up. You got to hate your family in order to follow me. You got to take up the cross, that weapon of Roman torture and execution. Take up your cross to follow me. You need to give away all your possessions in order to follow me. Come. The defibrillator to the soul. Jesus says we got to count the costs. Now, the scripture's placement in the year feels like yet another guilt trip about how we spend our money. It's like a blog post about fitness and healthy eating that somehow makes it into our inboxes every December and January. Make a new choice for the new year. Dedicate yourself and your new body for a new you. It's an easy choice and it's a good choice for your physique and especially your abs in 2020. It's always about the abs, isn't it? But remember, 12 or 1,672,533. Anybody who knows stats about the number of New Year's resolutions that are broken or about the rising diabetes epidemic in our country knows that we are not good at counting the costs in the long term. We're really good at the margin. Marginal cost-benefit analysis that is making the best decision for us at the moment, our brains are really well wired for that. Think about those students who are walking down that hallway, who are employing those exceptional marginal cost-benefit analysis skills. I'm going down this hallway and I'm trying to remember the number 1,672,533 and I have a need for neurological glucose that's sugars, it's fuel for our brains. I'm trying to remember it. I need more fuel. Glucose, sucrose, fructose, Splenda, whatever it is, the cake provides. But if that number is 12, you are not low on fuel. You've got plenty in the tank. Your prefrontal cortex, that rational decision-making part of your brain, is not taxed. So you don't need help dampening the desire in order to choose that good-looking bowl of fruit. The sad news for us biologically is that the prefrontal cortex is among the newest parts of the brain evolutionarily. It's only been around for a couple hundred thousand years and isn't near, remotely as powerful as our amygdala, as the emotional and reptilian parts of our brains that drive most of the decisions that then we rationalize later. 
so we struggle to count the costs. Spiritually, it often means that we follow Jesus when he does the sparkly bling-bling of divinity, healings and miracles, and telling us good things about sticking it to the man. And then we choose the easier roads when it comes to the cross or the iceberg. Remember that the same folks who followed Jesus in those swarms as he traveled across the Galilean hillsides by the Sea of Galilee, that when they reached Jerusalem, that they either partake in the silence of violence that so many of us white Americans know all too well, or they join with the crowds shouting, give us Barabbas, crucify him. Twelve or 1,672,533. What do you think is the easier choice when you're surrounded by a, a ravaged, mad crowd who doesn't like messianic fingers coming in and disrupting your city? So are you counting the costs? We know the bad news, but the good news of the gospel is that there is a way of counting that leads to life. Creating matrix metrics and measuring ourselves against Micah 6.8, are we seeking justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God every day? Jesus gives us two short parables as to what that can look like in his world. The king who figures out whether he's going to get decimated on the battlefield or the guy who builds the tower, who figures out those long-term costs, not just the marginal cost-benefit, but the long-term, which is much harder for our brain to do. The guy who sat down and figured out how to build that tower such that he would have the cost, that there would be cost overruns, because there's always cost overruns in our lives. Can I get an amen? There's always overruns. There's always extraneous circumstances. There's always something else to stop us along the way. And that guy in that parable finishes the tower. Unlike so many folks whose funerals I've been a part of, whose families regret things they haven't done. Or in Jesus' example, the folks who are building those towers that don't get finished. Like so many skyscrapers that I learned about this week. That is a fun internet dive if you really want to waste an hour or two of your life. There's the Illinois the one-mile-high skyscraper conception of Frank Lloyd Wright that would have brought Chicago's mile-high skyscraper to be four times the tallest building at that point in time, which was the Empire State Building, didn't happen. There was the Chicago Spire, also in Chicago, but bungled by the recession and some questionable business practices. This is Chicago, after all, with city and by home and love. There's the Jeddah Tower of Abu Dhabi that's still scheduled but hasn't had any movement for a while. There's the Shimizu megacity pyramid supposed to float in Tokyo Bay, but it needs materials which haven't been invented yet. But nothing seems as embarrassing as the Russia Tower in Moscow, which had 118 floors and 101 elevators and cladded all over by glass, remains incomplete and empty. We need to count the costs. 
Are you counting the costs of what it will take to follow Jesus? It's something I asked myself yesterday. Yesterday I went to a talk by the marvelous scholar out of Drake, Jennifer Harvey, who wrote a book about how to raise white kids in this American racial landscape. And yesterday she reminded me that the cost, the tasks of raising white children means talking about the smog of racism that they are breathing in every day, even when we're not injecting it into their lungs. Isn't that a powerful metaphor? Racism is this smog. And parents, grandparents, the church should be invested in helping to make breath masks to help them to handle the pollution that is around. That's one cost that I have to work on calculating. How much of my time is worth it? How much of my energy is worth those kingdom values that I espouse? Are you calculating the cost of a life where people will say good things about you, not just now and to your face because it helps them? Are you living the kind of life where someone will say something about you at your funeral? Will our lives be like the bulletin cover, a nice thought of a skyscraper that never accomplished what it really wanted because it was focused on overruns and unfulfilled ambitions in our careers? Now, most of us are pretty good at that marginal cost-benefit of, hey, I'm at church, look at me right now, I am making a good life choice. 1,672,533, it took a lot of work to get the kids out of bed, or at least myself clothed, but I am here. And thanks be to God, that is a wonderful thing. But it's much harder, much harder to get past the marginal into the long term when we're in those retail corridors or have the Amazon page on the screen of our desktop. It's much harder to make those long-term cost calculations when we are saddled with extracurricular commitments and sports that we have to get to because we are making well-curated children that will get into Ivy League schools. I wouldn't want them to have to live like someone else outside of this neighborhood. It's much harder to calculate those costs when we are tossed about emotionally and mentally by the media we digest and by the hurricane of hurts in the world that we see. And so many of us are well-intentioned and want to help everybody. How do we calculate all that? How are we making choices that reflect the kingdom values that we espouse? What will it cost you to follow Jesus? Will it cost you a few extra bucks to your favorite nonprofit or church to sort of relieve the conscience? Will it mean time not making money, making memories, making a legacy? Will it cost engaging as we enter into the season of engagement? We'll talk more about what it means to invest in a life that we know has spiritual and biological returns on health. Everything from small groups to Bible studies to setting up a coaching or spiritual direction session with Pastor Molly or myself. 
Will our bank accounts, our eulogies, the memories of loved ones, will they tell the story of our lives that the cross asks for? What will it cost for you to follow Jesus? For Ralph Abernathy, E.D. Nixon, and Glenn Smiley, for countless cooks, black professionals and low-wage black workers, the help, the cost was 381. That's how many days the Montgomery bus boycott took. That's how many days that all of those workers of varied socioeconomic backgrounds chose to walk to work. Miles, so many of them, having to get up hours earlier than they would have previously. But Martin Luther King Jr. summarized the souls and the spirits of so many who took part of the Montgomery bus boycott, who stood, not just stood, but walked in the face of racism. When King said, we came to see that in the long run, it is more honorable to walk in dignity than to ride in humiliation. So we decided to substitute tired feet for tired souls and to walk the streets of Montgomery. Thanks be to God for the saints who have walked before us, who have shown us what it costs to follow Jesus, to be part of the kingdom of God. And may we be so blessed by how we spend our money, by what we spend our time thinking about, and how we invest our time that we too may walk away with tired feet and even more tired souls. Thanks be to God and amen.